Welcome to Nothing Confidential, the podcast. I'm Kristen Hinkey, your hostess with the mostest, guide from the side, and mistress of ceremonies. Together, we're about to explore and deconstruct the shame and stigma surrounding our sexuality. You heard that right. We're going deep on the topics of sex, relationships, spirituality, health, and everything else that impacts our ability to live, love, and orgasm freely. My hope is to shine a light on our shared experiences by normalizing taboo topics and empowering each of you to reclaim autonomy of your pleasure, your bodies, and your lives. You are now entering a judgment-free zone where I ask all the uncomfortable and embarrassing questions for you. Our unofficial mantra is be curious, not judgmental. So leave your inner prude at the door or strap her in tight because this is happening. Hey, Pod Squad. It's Kristen. Great to be back with all of you. And I am really jazzed about the conversation that I am about to introduce into your field of awareness. We're talking about kink today, my friends. This is a topic that I personally love and am incredibly curious about and am always exploring and trying to learn more about and and playing with in my own relationship with my partner, my husband, Mike. And who better to talk about this with than my friend, Catherine Friedman, who is a psychotherapist and intimacy consultant living and working in New York City and the Hudson Valley. She's a New York licensed mental health counselor, an Oregon licensed professional counselor, and an ASEC certified sex therapist. So she knows what is up. She also uses her mindful embodied approach to assist people in all areas of sexuality therapy and exploration with a particular enthusiasm for working with people from marginalized communities and those pursuing alternative sexualities and relationship styles to meet their unique desires. As a teacher, Catherine provides classes on mindfulness, embodiment, kink, empowerment, and trauma in an array of venues. And as a provider, she offers both long-term therapy and short-term consulting based on the needs and locations of clients. I will be linking all of the links to her website, her work, her writing, her consulting, all of her services so that when your mind is blown open by this conversation, you can reach out to her and have her maybe do some kink consulting for you so that you can learn more about all of the things we delve into during today's conversation, uh, which include but are not limited to healing trauma through kink, what that might look like, and how that those things support each other. We, in the very beginning, Catherine and I are kind of catching up because, oh yeah, newsflash, she is Nothing Confidential alumni from season one. She was originally here with me in episode 17, Fake It Till You Make It, which was a hilarious, vulnerable, super juicy conversation. (laughs) We go a lot into my personal life. I believe I was pregnant at the time and I was bemoaning all of the things to Catherine and she was so gracious and patient and magical and supportive. And we had a beautiful conversation and it is worth revisiting. So I will also link that. That's another reason why I'm incredibly, incredibly excited to 
be talking to her because this is a reunion. So the first half of this conversation is us catching up and nerding out for my cerebrals on trauma. We talk about the evolution of her trauma adaptations. We talk a little about what we are working with individually in our personal lives right now in the arena of trauma healing, somatics, all of that good stuff. And then we move into the meat and potatoes of this conversation, which is kink. And she walks us through the beginning steps. We talk about what not to do when getting into kink. We cover some of the more obvious things like why you shouldn't take notes on kink from a TV show and the biggest problems with the Fifty Shades franchise. Then we talk about the more nuanced, less obvious things like why everyone is confused about kink, non-sexual kink, um, the difference between fetish and kink. We look at bondage Uh, Catherine has a really beautiful bondage practice. And so we talk about that and exactly why you need to know what a non-collapsing single column tie is. These are the reasons why I say you should bring a pad and a pen when you are listening to these conversations. (laughs) And Catherine tells us a story about her car wash kink experience, which you will not want to miss. And then somewhere in there, we talk about decentralizing orgasm, tips for getting better at dirty talk, and Catherine and I go on a little rant about Disney. Full disclaimer, I would like to note that against the wall penetration, which I mention in relation to Disney, hasn't happened in any Disney movie to my knowledge. And I just want to clarify that when we talk about Disney, we are actually talking about Hollywood and big media at large. We go off the rails on how the media's portrayal of sex, kink, etc. continues to be a great disservice to us and does far more harm than good. But I just wanted to clarify, I do have problems with Disney for other feminist reasons, but against the wall penetration is not one of them. So all of that being said, I want to let you get to this conversation with Catherine. I am so grateful to her again for just the generosity of her time, her knowledge, her humor, her curiosity. She is one of my favorite people to talk about anything that has even a hint of taboo attached to it because she is just such a safe person and she is so educated and articulate and just magical. And so Catherine, thank you, thank you, thank you. I cannot wait to see who feels ready to tackle some, you know, beginning kink stuff in their relationship post this conversation. I will see y'all on the other side. my goodness. Catherine Friedman, thank you so much for coming back to Nothing Confidential. I, this is, this is a reunion. Catherine is like OG season one alumni. (laughs) And I am so honored that she's back. And it feels really special because I mean, the last time we talked was pre-pandemic. Yes. And since we last spoke, 
you have literally moved across the country. You have gotten a divorce. You have gotten licensed as a therapist in a totally different state. So tell me a little bit since between now and last time, because in the show notes, I'll direct everyone to our first episode together, but I would love to just know, like, since I saw you on nothing confidential last time, what has happened? Give me a rundown. Uh, I should have gone back and re-listened. I have to say, I did not do that. Um, because my life is very busy. So I, um, I, let me collect my thoughts for a second, instead of saying, um, a thousand times. <laughs> I can tell you what I, what I remember, cause I didn't re-listen to it afresh either, but what is still burned into my brain is that we had a very potent conversation that as usual, I think we kind of sidewalked into it around, women feeling shame and feeling like they needed to confess to their partners that they had been faking orgasms. And we just yeah. kind of set the record straight for everyone. And we were like, listen, <laughs> this is why people fake. This is not your fault. This is super normal. And here are ways to kind of walk forward out of it without crucifying yourself on a cross that you didn't put yourself on in the first place. So yeah. that got a lot of response. That was a great oh, conversation. Again, like I said, I was very pregnant, very hormonal, very frustrated, dealing with all kinds of personal dynamics in my relationship. And so you gave a lot of beautiful support around that. And one of the things we did not talk about that we're going to talk about today, because I think in the end, I was like, we're going to have you back to talk all things kink. Yeah. You were like, let's talk about kink. kink. I know. And then we were already like two hours in. So I was like, okay, we can't talk kink today, but today, Right. right now we are going to talk kink in this conversation, which I can't wait for. We're going to talk about Always happy to talk bondage. About. We're going to talk ah. about, oh my gosh, because I've been watching you and your tying and binding yeah. and all of your beautiful, like it literally looks like art. Oh. So I'm excited to get into all of that stuff. But the last time we spoke, you were yeah. married, you were living in a different state. Yes. Tell me just a little bit about like what has transpired and whether the pandemic played a role in like exploding literally everything in your life. Yeah. I think that happened to a lot of people. So I was absolutely one of those people for whom the pandemic uh, was a catalyst to make big changes. Uh, As I also ushered my, you know, 25 clients that I was Zoom sessioning with a week through their huge transitions. Um, It was an extremely intense time, both as a therapist and in my personal life. Um, And for me, it really became about wanting a homecoming. Um, I was born and raised in New York City. I was living in Portland, Oregon. Before that, I had lived in uh, Boulder, Colorado. So it was five years in Boulder, 13 years in of ultimately in Portland and I never felt at home there. And um, also my father died of um, during the pandemic of COVID. We had been estranged and there was, I had had to sort of flee that. Um, that was a large reason why I didn't live in New York anymore. And then when my dad died um, and even before my dad died, like when the protests were happening, when the pandemic was happening, I just wanted to be home. I wanted to be in the place that feels like home. I wanted to be near members of my longtime chosen family that live on the East Coast. I wanted to be near my blood family. I wanted to be near more Jews. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted my child to be near more Jews. That was really important to me, especially with the sort of enhanced white supremacy that was starting to seethe in the air. Um, I just wanted to go home. And there had been a lot of pieces in my marriage that were unsatisfying for me on a personal level, but that had felt kind of selfish to um, advocate for that. And I felt loyal to and bonded to my longtime husband. And then I reached a point where I said to myself, you know what, I need to do this. I need to do it alone. And I need to become this person that I can't be while still in this marriage. Um, and as you'll recall, our marriage was open, mm-hmm. um, but that wasn't what it was about. It was about really individuating and differentiating for myself, whether it was about having multiple relationships right? Which an open marriage can provide. Um, or whether it was about like really finding myself as a human, which for me is as a woman, cause I'm very strongly identified as a woman and that narrative of finding myself as a woman and asserting myself as a woman and moving to where I wanted to be and having an independent household and taking care of my child. Um, and, being, I'm literally on the same like exact latitude as where I used to spend time um, as a as a young person. I'm in exactly the same climate. I can see the Hudson River from my house, and that for me is peace mm. in so many ways. Yeah, and there's there's so much there. There's so much beauty there. There's so much tenderness there. There's yeah. so much growing pain there. Yeah, and it's really interesting. What I'm feeling struck by is this concept of, of coming home and yeah, almost at, at like going back. Like I literally wrote a, a blog post today called you, maybe you really can go home again. Yes. And it was all kind of around this like anti growth, you know, anti forced <laughs> momentum, anti personal growth, where we're constantly striving forward, forward, forward. And what I've been reflecting on for me personally, that is not to say or to shit upon growth. I'm a very growth mindset kind of person. Um, I really value growth and evolution and in my own healing journey. And especially I'm curious if this is true for you too, in working with my clients in working in trauma and nervous system regulation and all of these things, my healing deepens all the time as I'm practicing, embodying the things that I'm teaching and guiding and helping other people access in themselves. And so the place I've come to recently is this recognition that I had a lot of unresolved um, flight in my, like my self-defense, you know, response of flight was something that had kind of been untagged. Like I was unaware of how that had played an intense role in the way that I kind of abruptly like left home, pulled the pen, threw a grenade. And only 12 plus years later, have I, do I actually have the regulation and the safety to look back and get curious about the core pieces of myself that I left behind when I like ran away from everything I've ever known. Yeah. And so I'm in this process that to some may look like a weird regression where like, I'm not striving forward. I'm moving back towards the me that has existed the longest and wondering how she integrates and fits into 
this person that I've evolved into. And like, it's this, this struggle for congruency and harmony within myself. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't resonate with that more. I mean, my, my, my 18 years on the West coast or out West were flight. It was, I fled literally I fled. Um, and, and that was what I actually needed to do. And, um, I don't regret that at all. And when it became time that I was ready to go back and face the place that I came from, the sort of demons or monsters or what have you that I thought lived here, um, the parts of myself that live here, I, I was eager to come back. I mean, I was chomping at the bit. I couldn't wait. Um, and so that fueled my drive to come back here um, to the East Coast, which is, yeah, I mean, I had literally fled. I felt like I had been banished. Um, And I, I mean, I hadn't literally been banished, but I just couldn't fully live as myself here Mm -hmm. on the East Coast at the time. I mean, there's also, um, there's a million other factors, obviously it's like super complicated and there's, um, there's lots of interpersonal pieces and, and all that kind of thing. Um, and it's very different to leave someplace, uh, because you're making a deliberate return than it is to leave someplace because you have to get out. Now that's not to say there weren't things that I wasn't fleeing in Portland, i.e. terrible climate change stuff. Those fires in 2020 were absolutely terrifying for people who don't know or don't remember um portland oregon had literally the worst air quality on the planet for about a week and it was like something out of a post-apocalyptic movie it was burning like it was on fire like it it was was just you would see it on the news and it just the smoke billowing around it and it was unbelievable like yeah. you've seen that stuff, you've seen some of that, like in California before during drought seasons and things, yeah. but nothing like the intensity of this and especially where it was happening. It just, yeah, like global warming is really all, I don't know what <laughs> for anyone yeah. who still doubts it. Like, oh it was, God. yeah, that was some intense <laughs> climate change right there. And yeah. that definitely inspired some flight, which actually motivated me. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, sometimes you know, our friend Kimberly Ann Johnson talks about this, right? That there's positive and negative components to all of these responses that we have in our nervous system to trauma. And sometimes, I hope I'm not misquoting her, um, but sometimes flight is the intelligent thing to do, right? Initially, it does, I mean, I know this from my own trauma training, like initially these responses are intelligence, right? Fight, flight, freeze, fawn, they're intelligent. And then it's a question of whether they are overseeing their welcome and overriding what's actually going on in the present moment. Right. And in that moment, I had a flight response that was good. Yes. It It was was productive. It It was was the right thing. Yes. Well, and that's, I think what, where people can sometimes get lost and you as a therapist, obviously have seen this a lot where the shame layer comes in is when we 
create cognitive meaning around what our physiology chose. Totally. And so like with those flight instances, you know, when I look back on being 18 and at like the height of a volatile relationship with a parent and some of these things. And I remember telling the story for years after without any of the awareness or language I have now, where I I would say I had to get out of there or I was going to die. That's the language I would use. I was going to die. Yeah. If I stayed there, I had to claw my way out. Like it was always very violent when I talked about like how I needed to remove myself from there. Yeah. And what I've since learned is that, I mean, our, whichever self-defense your physiology deploys is the one it's the, the blueprint of sorts that occurred when you were a child. So the first time, whether it was, you know, big T, little T, the first time you felt unsafe, the first time you felt scared and you really like it, it made an impact on you, whatever your body deployed in that moment at that age, whether it was running away or freezing typically, right. cause you're small, whichever one was successful and you're still alive, that's the one that you're going to deploy first over and over and over well into adulthood. So like our response to things starts so much earlier. So I'm, you know, 18 and not five, but I have been successful at running away and removing my body from situations before. And so my, my body is like, this is the most efficient thing. This is the data shows. This is the most efficient (laughs) way to get you out of here and keep your ass alive. And that is our only job. What you figure out after that is on you, but we got to do this. So in your case, you know, again, just that, that ramp up, it's like without even creating meaning around it, like you said, the issue then becomes when we don't allow that cycle to complete and it begins to show up in our relationships where we're running away from the people we love and we can't stay in conversation and we can't sustain, you know, activation and those kinds of things. That's when we obviously need some support in the healing process, but that initial picking you up and like getting you out of there, flying you out of there. That was only good. That was only with your livelihood in mind. So absolutely. And, and to just nerd out on this, like, you know, situation for a little bit, like my initial response to everything is actually freeze Mm -hmm. and then fawn Mm -hmm. and then light. Yes. Um, and so I don't know where fight figures in there for me. I'm not sure I've, that's okay. It's layered. (laughs) I'm really sure I figured that one, that one out yet. Um, uh, and so for me in this situation, I had been stuck for a decade, um, in a situation in which I, I felt so trapped. Um, and so the motivation of that flight impulse was actually like developmentally really progressive for me. Mm -hmm. And it had been for me 18 years earlier when I got out of New York, right? That was also a progressive move. It was me getting out of stuckness. And so, you know, as long as we're talking about this, you know, I think that there's a tendency for a lot of people to demonize any of these responses, but I really like to honor them and the way that they can be energizing and activating mm-hmm. and the way that trauma is not just destructive, but also constitutive of who we are. Um, I, I did a amazing, amazing workshop with this woman, Avi Sakatapalu. I think that's her name. She's this incredible uh, psychoanalytic 
thinker in New York and she's doing some writing about psychoanalysis and kink right now and drama, which is just like so exciting. I'm so nerded out on it. It's like ridiculous. I I can't even. And so um, this is going to segue us a little bit into the relationship between trauma and kink, right? Which is that um, sometimes we respond to trauma in a way that um, gets us stuck. And sometimes we can work through it in creative ways. And for some people, that's what kink does. Mm-hmm. And that is, I think for me and for some of my clients and in my learning around kink and therapy, I know that my trauma self changed. My embodied trauma self changed through my practice of partnered consensual kink. Um, And I think that it can be an incredibly powerful healing tool when done in a very conscious, very um, collaborative way. Now that's not the only reason to get involved with kink. You can also get involved with kink because it's just fun and where you have fantasies or you want to like push edges or you're a thrill seeker or you want greater intimacy with your partner or, you know, there's a, there's so many reasons I could like gush about it. But one of the really powerful things that it can do if done in a really safe container is it can start to reorganize your trauma responses in a way that I used to have an unbelievably um, intense startle reflex. Like if somebody was coming near the part of my back that's right between my shoulder blades, like if they, I could sense when they were like six inches away and I would start to go into a startle response. Like my body would start to arch and I would start to like jump. And after being hit a lot of times, knowing that was what was gonna happen, my startle response, like barely Mm -hmm. exists anymore. Yeah. And I, oh yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so much. I, so I love that we're talking about this because this is something I haven't, I haven't geeked out too much. It comes up in pretty much every conversation, but I haven't gotten into it too much. Um, cause the, with the work that I do with the, with somatic experiencing Peter Levine, Kimberly, our friend Kimberly, same, same teacher. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm deep, deep into that right now. And this, this, the layering where activation, again, not demonizing activation or your sympathetic system. Yes. There, there is health in both. We have to be like, you have to be able to get up sometimes you have to be able (laughs) to run. You have to be able. One thing I work with my clients on a lot, especially clients who have had sexual trauma is this regulation for the purpose of building the capacity to hold activation because sexual arousal is an activation of the sympathetic. And if you are at the top of your sympathetic tank and you get aroused, you may cognitively understand what's going on and want that. And then cascade into another layer of trauma response because you've tapped out, you've, you've hit your, your point, your breaking point. You can't do anymore. Yeah. And so I love what you said about how this, it's this evolution of your own protective responses, this moving through this thawing of the freeze, which is your go-to that's your trauma blueprint and being able to access enough sympathetic to get unstuck and to move and to get away. Like that's incredibly empowering that then becomes something that's incredibly helpful and vibrant. And it returns that sense of vitality 
yeah. to your body and to your system. And that's a huge deal. And that's something that I think in this very like two dimensional conversation that is happening worldwide, which is better than not having a conversation at all. But you know, when, when kale or the superfood of the month gets put up and everybody starts making infographics about it, it's like now everyone's (laughs) talking about fawning and that's great, but it's like, we get stuck in these three or four things and there's no nuance. And it's like, there's, there's nuance to everything, everything, including your trauma. It's all sympathetic, bad, parasympathetic, good. And if you were all parasympathetic, then you would never get up off the couch. Now you also- can't get sexually aroused or have good sex if you're stuck in your sympathetic right. because uh, sexual arousal is also a function of the parasympathetic nervous system. Central vagal to be right. exact. Yeah. <laughs> that's what allows the blood flow yes. to the areas that we want it to yes, go through. Because you're no longer conserving for, you know, fighting for your life or getting away. So things can actually like right. reach where they're all supposed to reach. Yeah. And that's the thing. Uh, that I wind up actually talking to a lot of my clients about because they get so, we're going back to the orgasm question. Um, I have so many clients, both um, of all genders, right? Who are, um, but particularly people with, who identify as, you know, cis male or cis female who have this really specific script around what sex and orgasm are supposed to look like. And so they put so much pressure on themselves to do it and do it fast right? The speed factors, like I'm not getting there fast enough. I'm not getting there fast enough. And here's the thing. If you're stressed out about having an orgasm, you're never going to have an orgasm. Never going to have one. Yeah. Never going to happen. Watched pot never boils. (laughs) Never going to happen because you're, you're too much in your sympathetic nervous system. The blood flow is going to stop. You're going to lose your erection if you're somebody with a penis and there's not going to be enough blood flowing to your clitoris and to your whole vulva area. If you're somebody with a vulva to actually have the pleasurable experience that's going to cause the orgasm. So, you know, this is just my, like, we need to decenter orgasm thing because your over centering orgasm thing is making it not happen. And also who kind of, who cares? Yeah. Um, right. That's just, I know. Like I we know. Kind of need to just like, remember that it's play and like, unless what you're trying to do is conceive, like it really, or unless you have like a really heavy kink in one area or another, and that's, what's yeah. going to make you happy. Like that's not the only thing going on there. So anyway, right. Well, and while orgasm does, I, I know that there is data that supports like orgasm, the, the contractions of the uterus yeah. and everything that does help you like that can help if you're trying to get pregnant, that helps. Yes. You don't have to have an orgasm to get pregnant. So like that doesn't okay. have to happen either. Like yeah. central that comes from like mainstream porn. Is that, is that where that comes from? Where everybody is so obsessed with having an orgasm because like the money shot, we all know it's over. We all know everything's done when everybody orgasms. Is that where it from? I think it's, I honestly don't know. So I'm going yeah. to go. I don't over. have the history on this. I'm just I like, don't either. did anyone get that? It's written, somebody might've written, but I'm my sure guess is that it has to do with patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure it does. I guess <laughs> a lot of things, most things do, and reproduction, yes. and um, you know, and and I, I think that would be something that would be really interesting. I, I probably should know more about this, but I don't have as much uh history of sexology as I would like to have. That's okay, we'll find it, someone to do that because we have other yeah. really important things to talk about. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. what is really interesting is that um, if you go to Masters and Johnson, right, and the first stuff that they did. I, re- I read their book 
right? And um, their first book. And their initial treatment to help a, you know, cis hetero married couple have good, what they consider successful, like mutually orgasmic orgasm is sensate focus. And sensate focus is as decentered a practice as you could possibly find. It's about touch, temperature, texture, and pressure on yeah. it's engaging yeah. your whole it's, the whole body so that you're not yeah you're not spectatoring you're not yeah. out of your head looking down on your body it's like keeping you grounded through sensation and it's mindfulness yeah it's embodied yeah. mindfulness which, which is, is so amazing. amazing which is so amazing no they were the ones who saved all of us from freud so <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. But that brought up, that brought up another, I'm like, there's so many ways to lead in and I'm like, okay, we're just going to have to plunge for it. I, cause I'm curious. So when we yeah. talk about decentralizing orgasm and I think when people are so focused on orgasm, no wonder like their sex sessions are, they're not super long. Again, you're talking about the speed. There's like this race to get to this point. And then if that's all you think of as sex, then you leave out this vast, playground of sensory, fantastical, you know, ways of being together. It feels like kink is one way to, to spend more time on the playground is how that, you know, because I feel at least in like the erotica I've consumed and some of the research I've done is like so much of kink. Like for me, I definitely identify, like, I like like anticipation kink, like that whole being tied up and left and not knowing people are coming back. I mean, that kind of thing. I'm like, I can get into that. So I feel like there's so much that builds on, yeah, that builds on this imagination and this fantasy and this anticipation that has, it's like everything that happens in your body before you're ever even touched. So penetration is like very, I mean, there's so many people who engage in kink for all kinds of reasons and penetration isn't even a part of it. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people engage in kink and it's not even necessarily uh, sexual, sexual, right? It's, it can be sensual and erotic without being sexual. Um, For other people, it is very sexual and there's definitely no right or wrong there. But I think, you know, as you were saying, one of the things that is so delightful about kink is that it uh, brings our focus onto all of our potential senses um, and it and on to a whole array of sensations and ways of being in our bodies that most adults don't engage in that much, right? They don't necessarily, you know, at when we when we kind of become these adult sexual beings, often uh, the the thing is like, okay, let's just get to the genitals as quickly as possible. But this is excuse me, let's not like jump to the genitals or maybe we will, it depends on what your kink is, but let's spend time having different sensations and also negotiating our relationships in different ways so that we are figuring out the tension, right? And the 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 fun of the tension and the anticipation and the excitement and how to cultivate that for one another in different ways. Um, and so it kind of gets to the unspoken pieces that are always there in any kind of sexual encounter and enhances them and blows them up. Um, now, depending on, I mean, kink is so varied and there are so many different ways of engaging in it. Um, but that's, you know, that's part of why I feel so passionate about it is because it 
really creates this opportunity to experience our bodies in such a more rich and playful and uh, complex way that most people don't have the opportunity to do unless they are ready to do this thing that is very taboo for some reason, but which really in some ways can be so tame. I mean, it can be right. rough and intense, but it can also like tickling somebody with a feather is like, right. <laughs> that's, there's really nothing. There's nothing. Like, that's not going to shock. I mean, that wouldn't shock any, anyone. Right. It's like, that's not that shocking to be tickled. I mean, you might be wearing something interesting or in a different location or something while it's happening. I mean, you can always take something from one pepper to three peppers, but you right. know, I'm, so I'm curious for anybody who's listening right now. And I think a lot of people, pretty much everyone, if you ask them, if they've heard of kink, they will say yes. And then if you ask them what they know about kink, it will be very, very little. If you ask them what kink is, they'll probably say something about whips, chains, maybe a gag ball. If they're adventurous, like being tied up, like that's BDSM is kind of what everyone thinks of. And that's only one facet of kink. Correct. Well, BDSM is the umbrella term, right? Okay. So, and BDSM, um, and I have this all broken down on my Instagram. Um, if you check my Instagram, which is at articulate desire, I have all this broken down in various places. Um, so BD is bondage and discipline. DS is dominance and submission. And SM is what we think of as S and M, right? Sadism and masochism. And so, um, those three are actually three kind of separate categories, right? Bondage and um, and discipline, that sort of implies stuff around maybe punishment. Um, it makes the assumption that bondage is about trying to confine someone, which it can be, but like in rope bondage, Japanese style rope bondage, which some people call shibari or kambaku. Um, I'm really hesitant about claiming these Japanese words for it, which may or may not actually be accurate to what we're doing. Um, that's a different, that can be very much about suffering and confinement and punishment, but it can also be super playful. Like the kind that I do, sure, it's about some suffering because being a bottom to, you know, to being tied up in rope and hung from the ceiling is not always comfortable, but it's also very much about the DS part, right? Which is the dominant submissive or in some case, top and bottom. Those are not synonymous, right? The top is the person who's the doer and the bottom is the dewy. So if something's happening, the top's doing it to the bottom. That's what those two mean. Dominant and submissive implies that there's a larger power dynamic involved between those two people and some kind of agreements and maybe even elaborate contracts of various sorts or into a whole big uh, kind of relationship in one in which one person has power and the other person gives the power over. So the, the submissive gives power to the dominant. The dominant receives the power from the submissive and enacts it within the relationship in whatever way. So uh, back to rope, tying rope can have a lot more of that component to it because it can be very dynamic um, and very, as you have said, very sort of artful, very playful, um, very creative. And I really like it personally because it's a way for me to like dance in the air. Um, And that I I, like some people like to be tied up because they want to be immobilized. I like to be tied up because I like to be immobilized sometimes, but mostly if I'm going to be suspended in the air, I want to be able to move. Like I want to play to me. That is 
Like that's why I'm learning self-suspension is so that I can tie myself up and play in the air because it's really, really fun. Um, and then I think the thing that most people think of when they think of kink is they think of S&M or sadism and masochism, which is giving and receiving pain. And the idea that somebody is taking pleasure in giving pain and somebody is taking pleasure in receiving pain. So that was my like extended remix. Yeah, no, and this, and this is great. This is like, a, we're breaking this down. This is like yeah. kink 101 for yeah. people who are curious about yeah. what this is. And I am trying to put myself in the shoes of people who want to know about it, but don't like the, the basest questions that they would want to ask, but they don't know where to ask. And then they might get in trouble going on the internet to try to find out this information. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to think of to help them yeah. responsibly receive information about this. I think one assumption, and we touched on this a little earlier, and I'm super curious to get into it a little deeper. I think one assumption that is had at large, which is one of the primary reasons that kink is still so taboo, mm-hmm. people think that if you are kinky or you're into quote unquote that stuff, uh-huh. it is because you are in some way fucked up, traumatized, or sick. And that is not the case, but I would love for you to just kind of speak to that piece. I'm curious. I'm curious why people think that, um, which we can't know why everyone thinks that, but that is like a, that's a universal kind of like, there's the people who understand it and engage with it. And then there's everyone who thinks that if you do something is wrong with you. Well, first of all, I don't have citations, but I could probably help you find some. But my understanding is that the research indicates that people who are interested in kink and engage in it are in fact happier than people that don't. Um, And I don't know exactly how that is all researched and whatnot. Um, There isn't historically a lot of funding for kinky research because it's years and years of uh, people saying that it's like freaky and deviant. I mean, I think a lot of the ideas of it being deviant go back very far. Um, But the ones that I'm kind of most familiar with is like early psychoanalytic ideas of, um, of perversion as the distortion of the sexual reproductive urge. Um, And that, you know, and per, you know, to pervert something is actually to sort of contort it or twist it or to make it do something that it's not supposed to do. So some of that comes from Freud, but Freud contradicted himself in so many different ways, you know, because he had such a long and prolific career and had so many different ideas that he also talks about polymorphous perversity as like an ideal thing where like we could get pleasure out of our whole bodies, right? And that it wouldn't necessarily be only located in the genitals, but In any case, I think a lot of it, you know, there's Puritan culture. You can say a lot more about that, about purity culture than I can. Um, I know that that's something that you have much more familiarity with than I do, but um, you know, anything that's going to say that the whole purpose of that pleasure is an virtually accidental um, component of sex and that sex that's not for reproduction or for obedience to a patriarchal marriage is, you know, inherently messed up in some way. Like those messages pervade our culture. They're in our films. They're in our, you know, stories. They're all over being perpetrated by different kinds of religious leaders, 
Um, they can be also perpetrated, you know, in the name of radical feminism. It's, it's very easy to choose sex and sexual pleasure as the target of uh, some kind of virulence uh, against some notion of moral uh, moral negativity, for lack of a better word, right? You know, I mean, we can see that right now politically. Like right now politically, we can see that when there's a conservative fear moment, people go for sex. They go yeah. for sexual deviance, what they you know, perceive to be sexual deviance. Sexual freedom gets shut down. And the idea that people who are embodied, playful, sensual, and engaging with their lives in a... Uh, you know, a way that includes a lot of touch is somehow messed up. And we're a threat. And we're a threat, threat to humanity, right? to civilization and all of this stuff. And we should be criminalized and, you know, censored and shut down and all that kind of stuff. So I think the answer to your initial question of like, why do people think that there's something wrong with kink is so big. Yeah. And it's just multi, multi-layered. Yeah. A lot of yeah. it's patriarchy. A lot of it's erotophobia. A lot of it is, you know, anti-embodiment and a lot of it is normativity because a lot, you know, it just end like, um, uh, like neuronormativity because a lot of people that are drawn to kink and other forms of sensual experience are, uh, are neurodivergent. Um, and they have, different interests in terms of what they want and need sensually and sexually than neuroconforming people who may be really focused on orgasm or, you know, I mean, not that neurodivergent people are initiated in orgasm. It's just that there's a wider array of neurological experiences than what is normed. And kink is part of that, right? Kink says your pleasure, it does not come from, you know, this kind of contact on your penis or vulva, okay, let's do it, right? Or your kind of intimacy comes from having a really clear set of rules about what we're gonna do because we get all these messages about how like sex is supposed to be spontaneous and free and you're supposed to automatically know what the other person's gonna want. And Kink says, let's talk about it ahead of time and say, you know, negotiate and get consent and plan out what we're gonna do and so that you're gonna know what's coming at you and what's not coming at you. And then we're gonna set up all these rules and then we're gonna have fun in there, right? Which is something that, completely does not conform to the the conventional narrative of romance and sex but it's actually really fun really romantic and really sexy it's just different from what disney movies tell us right well and that what you just described is the ideal set of circumstances for optimal trust and safety and exploration and curiosity, which is yes. where really, really good sex happens. Yeah. And I've, I've ranted on this podcast many a time about Disney and their four minute up against the wall penetration, yeah. mutual yeah. humping orgasm situation. Like that is a travesty and should, yeah, that, <laughs> that should be criminalized. Criminalized nonsense. Disney oh sex crimes. Oh my God. Disney sex crimes. You're yes. Like, Honey, did you buy that Disney stock yet? Because you might want to wait. I just, no, <laughs> I just, it, it is. It, it does such a disservice to everyone. It's like there's hardcore porn on one end and then there's yeah. fucking soft 
porn Disney on the other end. And like, we are not being served in any of that space. And I feel like kink is so hard for people because it's, it is truly, it is like that gray playground in the middle of all of the extremes where you get to decide exactly, exactly what you want. And I, I can understand how it would be really powerful on a journey to coming home to yourself, because that's probably the most time, the most focused time you've ever spent getting really honest in an environment that has been created to cultivate safety around honesty, instead of there being fear of rejection, embarrassment, humiliation, shame, all of those things. But having this conversation, having someone who's engaging in that and co-creating this dynamic with you there's so much safety to be really, really honest about what you want or about trying things that you think you might want. And maybe you don't want them, but you get to find that out. Yes. Whereas most people are going through the, you know, five moves they saw in Cosmo or in their little red book in the table and, you know, all the ones with the rock and chair, they skip over. It's like, they're not, they're using, they're cycling through the same five things over and over. And if it's his birthday, they just turn around and do it. It's just like, (laughs) I just feel like a lot is getting missed. Um, a lot is getting missed. Yeah. And so I'm really curious because I think there is obviously a safe, respectful, healthy, non-creepy way to engage in learning more about kink or finding community or resources that are safe where you can learn about that sliding into someone's DMS to like, try and get them to help you with your, your fetish or your kink or, and fetish and kink are different. Yes. Um, yes. Or are they inter, they, they intertwined? Can you tell me the difference between those? So a fetish is a specific thing that gets invested with sexual energy. Um, and that somebody will need to be in connection with in order to have sexual release, right? That's like the old school definition of it, like okay. from Freud or whatever. Okay. Um, now people often use kink and fetish interchangeably now, um, because they'll just say, oh, I have a, that kink, or I have a, that fetish. And there isn't as much. So and I'm not invested in pathologizing people. So that's okay. something so you're like, so I don't really care about well, that. Exactly. Yeah. So that's why I'm being kind of flippant about it because I don't see a problem if like, if you need a shoe yeah. so that you can have an orgasm. Yeah. You're like, like if I don't, you consider that kinky and that's a fetish, like that's fine. Like, like who cares? It's causing a big problem in your life. To me, it's not a problem. Like, that's just my approach to pretty much everything in my whole therapy practice. Like, if it's not a problem, it's not a problem, right? Yeah. Let's not make things <laughs> good mantra. If it's and not a not problem, it's not a problem. therapeutic mantra. I've been meaning to do a post <laughs> on it, right? Like, if you're really anxious about something, but it's not actually a problem in your life, then who cares, right? Like, other people say I shouldn't be so worried. Are you upset that you're worried? No, but other people tell me I shouldn't then be worried. Stop worrying. <laughs> well, then fine, go ahead and worry, but don't worry about them because they're, it's not their life. Um, so in any case, that's kind of my attitude about all of this stuff, right? Um, and I think it's important for me to qualify that like when I talk about kink 
a lot of the times I'm talking about an idealized situation in which someone has found a really equally curious partner who is interested in learning about safety and skill because a lot of the things that we do in kink require both safety and skill. And some of the things that seem like they would be the least dangerous are actually the most dangerous. Ooh, like what? Rope bondage. Well, yeah, you could, <laughs> you could hang someone by accident. You yeah. can cut off circulation and yeah. lose a foot. Like there's a lot of things that can go Yeah, wrong. nerve, nerve damage, damage happens a lot. So if you want to tie your partner up, if you want to have, you know, bondage with your partner to just have some sort of like kinky sex, either get some cuffs or learn how to tie a loose knot. There are plenty of rope tutorials, really good ones, some of them for free on YouTube. Um, And you want to learn a non-collapsing single column tie. Non-collapsing single column. You guys got that? Write it down. The non-collapsing is the part that you want because when you're in the heat of the moment and your partner is tied up or you're tied up and everything's getting all excited and you're like, oh, it doesn't matter that I can't feel my wrist. The circulation's not what's going to really hurt you. It's the nerve damage that could happen that you do not, you do not want to be risking permanent nerve damage. That is, that is not fun. That's not good. Um, So you want to find a partner who's willing to learn and engage in this in a semi-serious way because you are engaging in high-risk stuff. Um, And you want to find a partner that is open, right? And willing to share not only your sort of potentially scary fantasy inner world that maybe you've never shared with anybody before, but also is willing to do that with you, right? And that can be a really difficult and also incredibly exciting, emotional, intimate dance between two people or more than two people, right? Is getting to the place where you are actually talking about your sexual fantasies or your play fantasies of like, oh, you know, when I was a kid, I used to watch XYZ cartoon and they used to hit each other with, you know, feather dusters. I mean, you you know, who knows where it comes from? It can come from all kinds of places. And that's, that's a lot of the fun part is exploring those things of like, oh, right. I remember feeling like a little bit a little bit of an interesting tingle in my body when I was like 12 years old and I was watching this show with my parents or whatever, I was reading this novel and I heard about somebody being up in a tree, you know, you just, you never know what it's going to be. So that's super exciting. And you, you want to find a partner that you are not scared to talk to about this. The other thing that you were, you were saying something about earlier, Kristen was, you know, that you start slow, right? Now I didn't do this because I do everything wrong. Um, <laughs> just so, because that's the kind of person I am. I'm a jump into the deep end kind of walk it back. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a jump in at the, to the deep end person. I, I mean, I didn't do everything wrong. I did. I did figure out some safe things, but I'm a jump in at the deep end kind of person. Um, but that doesn't mean that everybody has to be a jump in at the deep, deep end kind of person, right? Go and watch other people play or watch some porn with some kink in it that is intriguing to you, right? Some amateur porn maybe, because that's far more likely to be realistic to what something you and somebody you're with are actually going to do. Right. 
Um, maybe not like the super duper professional BDSM porn because that stuff is for pros. Yeah. Do not try this at home under no circumstances. Yeah. Not your, not your first time. You'll be collapsing stuff and breaking stuff and damaging stuff. Yeah. And yeah, you don't want to do that. Um, and also, um, you know, the community has changed a lot. I, you know, I am always hearing from people about like, you know, the pre-internet kink scene and how you had to be vetted in order to meet anybody and that sort of thing. And it was very much like you'd see an ad on the back page of the weekly and that would say something. And then you'd like learn a secret handshake. And I mean, not literally, but like, you'd have to have coffee with somebody a few times before you could go to what's called a munch, which is a a kinky gather. It's a gathering of kinky people in a vanilla setting. So no play, no hitting on people, just talking, getting to know each other, um, starting to learn an environment. But it's different now because we have the internet. And it's even more different now because lots of people got interested in kink during the pandemic and they couldn't meet in person. So lots of people started trying things on their own without having mentors to talk to. And, um, And lots of people do kink without a community, which is not inherently a problem, but like any other risky recreational activity, like if you were gonna start rock climbing, would you start rock climbing without learning anything, right? You'd you'd probably go and ask someone to show you like the gear and how to use it and how to keep your rope from going slack so your partner doesn't die on the wall. And like- Right, and you might try on the wall in a public climbing gym with other people around. You'd probably have a practice partner that you were doing it with or, or like the stakes were really low, right? You would do that kind of thing. And so it's like any other activity like that in that it has high, it can have high physical and emotional risks. Now it doesn't have to, it can be you and your partner tickling each other with feathers, right? Or nibbling on each other or, you know, putting a mask on and breathing on each other, right? It can be really simple um, and very not risky. But I think one one of the dangers is that what people see as kink on TV a lot of the time or hear about or whatever is they're like, if I'm gonna be really kink after something really intense. So they'll try something that's way further than their own comfort level for either partner, right? And they'll they won't have talked about their expectations. And so whoever's doing the topping is like, oh God, I got to be this big bad meanie because my bottom wants me to be this like really big bad meanie and all that kind of stuff. And you know, I got to be really, I got to hit really hard or I got to tie them up really tight and I got to say all these mean things to them. And then the bottom will be like, oh, I got to really tough it out. I got to be like, you know, this, this really incredibly strong person. And it doesn't matter if I'm enjoying it. I just got to take it for my top. And like, neither one of you is having a good time, yeah. right? That, that is not the point. The point is not to be the toughest, biggest, baddest, you know, most enduring, meanest, any of those things. It's to, start where you are and determine that with your partner and a really an experienced top or an experienced bottom, an experienced switch, somebody who does both an experienced kinkster is gonna want to ask you a lot of questions about how do you want to feel in this experience? What, like, what are you hoping for in terms of sensations? Where in your body do you want to be touched? Where in your body do you not want to be touched? What kind of touch? 
If you're going to be hit, what kind of things do you want to be hit with? Oh, you want to know what it feels like to be hit with these different kinds of things, right? Let's try it out. This is what a cane feels like. This is what a slap feels like. This is what a flogger feels like. I have this other crazy thing that I found at Home Depot. I found this other thing that I found at, you know, Costco that looked like it would be fun. Here's like a thing that's usually for cleaning a grill. Do you want to know what that feels like on your skin? People get very creative. Yeah, but you know that the people who work at Home Depot, they know when someone is in there looking for kink tools for the first time. Like that was me for Mike's birthday, like five years ago. I literally went in there and all I bought was like the softest, silkiest rope they had. I got like, I don't know how much. I got enough to do like arms and legs on like a four poster bed or something. I literally checked out with it. And I know that the person there was like, (laughs) okay, like we know what this chick's here for. Like this is. She's like, she's clearly tying somebody up with this. Yeah. I didn't have a paint swatch or anything. It's like, yeah. this is, yeah, this is what we're doing. Yeah. yeah. And again, did not, I did not look up, um, I didn't look up proper ties or anything like that. I can't, I will say the only thing I can say for myself is that I have worked with horses for years and years and oh. years. And I did a quick release tie so Perfect. that he would have a little resistance if he All wanted right. it, but if he wanted out, he could undo it. Yeah. I mean, like people who've done Boy Scouts or right. or who were sailors or stuff like that. Like people know knots, right? Yeah. Just be smart about your knots. And if yeah. you don't know stuff about knots, maybe learn some things about knots. But definitely don't do like, don't be the third grader who like wants your shoe to stay tied. Don't do like three knots on top of each other to make sure it doesn't come undone. Like that is not, <laughs> really we're not actually see, trying to them. If you really want to see what not to do, watch the first season of Bonding on Netflix. Oh, so- Mike and I watched that show because why would you not? It was super interesting. And, and you, you can tell me this better than anybody. Cause I feel like you obviously engage in this on more layers than I do. I felt like it was really like novelizing on, you know, like, I just, I felt like a lot of the stuff we were watching still, I'm like, if someone wanted to bring kink into their relationship they yeah. wouldn't start with any of the shit on this show. Like they wouldn't start here. That wouldn't happen. Like seeing people getting beat up in penguin suits is probably yeah. not like where they're going to start. Most well, likely. Prodom, right. Yeah. And, and prodom stuff is a whole, yeah. it's kind of a whole different world um, from like your day-to-day bedroom kink. I mean, not always, but yeah. like people are coming to her to be facilitated. Like they're coming for a specific thing and she knows how to give that to them in an yeah. expert way. And that that's what's happening. Yeah. And would you, so would you, the thing I have, I, yeah. I mean, the Go second ahead. season of bonding, they actually must've talked to a bunch of actual prodoms and like, it got better. The second season is like excellent about the nitty gritty of kink. The first season is a mess about a number of things, um, but it's still incredibly charming. And I, oh, I it's so cute. I mean, we love the show. Watching, yeah. <laughs> The rope in the first season, there's a particular episode where she ties someone up in a way that you should never tie someone up and then leaves them there to untie themselves. Never tie anybody like that and never, ever leave somebody (laughs) you've tied up alone. Yeah. Don't do that. Period. It's dangerous. What, what could happen? Like, like, what would happen? I'm just, what well, would in happen? that case, I mean, this person would not have been able to tie, untie themselves, but yeah. the knots were so tight and they were not knots that you would use on a human. It was like somebody was tying up a gigantic mess 
uh, it was like a cat playing with oh, yarn, <laughs> essentially, right? Okay. And the knots were like tight and a right or and around joints. You never want to tie around a joint. Joints are complicated, right? They can get badly injured. They need to be replaced. They have, you know, ligaments and cal and uh, cartilage and all kinds of things in them. They're delicate, right? You never want to tie a joint. You just don't want to do that. So yeah, like yeah. that person could have gotten very badly injured and you just, you don't leave them alone. That's yeah, it's a- this is, I feel like, and I don't know how much, I know it was very, um, a lot of the stuff still was very soft and I hate that I have to bring it up, but I feel like every, so many people, like the American housewife didn't know what kink was until they read freaking 50 shades. Right. And then like so much and so much stuff in there. Like, I think like a lot of things, right. It's like, on the one hand, there's all of this awareness, which is great. Like maybe a lot of people recognize something in there and felt arousal in ways that they didn't realize that they ever would. And in one way that's really beautiful. And then on the other hand, there's all the people who are like, well, this is kink. Like, this is what kink is like. You know, I think it problem with 50 shades is not that it's cheesy right? I mean, who cares if it's cheesy? Lots of people love romance novels. That's fine. The problem or the the biggest problem with Fifty Shades is that the relationship is stalkerish and Uh non-consensual. And she does not have enough information to make any kind of informed consent. And he is someone who is highly traumatized, who is not working through his trauma. Like he's playing in a room with a person with no experience instead of actually working with professionals on his deep layers of trauma that we come to learn later on. So he's using it as an outlet, a therapeutic outlet, which could be incredibly and is, I mean, there's moments in the book where obviously it is very harmful to the person that he's engaging with. And there, and then- they're like slapping a big old mushigashi romantic, like, well, this is love. Right. Where it's like, I will stay and endure all of this stuff because I love this person. Right. And I mean, I, as I was saying earlier, and, and as is sort of starting to percolate in the academic circles that talk about kink, which are not large, but do exist, there is more willingness to and I agree with this, um, there's more willingness to see the potential for working through trauma through kink. It's just that it needs to be done with a lot of consciousness and with the consent of both parties, right? It's not cool. Like if you're someone who's experienced sexual assault or you know long-term sexual abuse or whatever, and you wanna work through that um, by being beaten, re-engaging with assault patterns, et cetera. Like that's not necessarily negative, but you want to know you're doing it and you want the people that you're asking to do that to you, to be consenting to engage in that level of emotional play with you because they also are going someplace deep. If you're asking somebody to be your monster, you need to tell them, I'm asking you to be my monster. Are you comfortable with that? And with what could happen to our relationship for a little while after that, right? Because people often don't think about the top and what the person who's doing the thing or causing the pain or whatever. And that's actually in some ways can be more difficult because they have to live with their internal monster, not just their internal victim, right? 
yeah. or their internal survivor, right? Like someone who's been victimized in the past can become a survivor through a kink process, right? If they do it in a really deliberate way, preferably in consultation with therapist, right? Right. <laughs> Preferably in consultation, you know, with very experienced, compassionate, trauma-informed kinky players. Um, probably not just like, hey, husband, I really want to relive this, or hey, new boyfriend, I really want to relive this and see yeah, if I can. That feels it. a little, that feels a little uh maybe don't do that. Maybe don't like, do that. Maybe don't do that. And similarly, <laughs> right? If you are a top and you know, you want to work through your own history of abuse, either by um, hitting somebody else or something like that. Don't like, let somebody know that before you, before you do that. Most of the tops that I know, the good ethical tops that I know will not play angry because they know that if they're angry, they won't be able to control themselves in the way that they need to, to stay connected with their partner in that situation and to be able to gauge because the fine, one of the fine arts of, of kinky play, especially I'm talking a lot about impact play and rope because those are the things that I have the most experience with. And I think those are the things that most people kind of think of, mm -hmm. excuse me. Yeah, I, I, I don't think bonded. they know like what is in, in between there, you know, yeah. like I think, I think of a lot of varying degrees of sensory play yeah. when I think of, of kink and I think of, you know, things that are depending on the type of kink, like taboos and things, yes. but that's more that intellectual. Like I enjoy the feeling of like, I'm going to get caught or like, this is naughty yeah. or like that kind of thing. I, that's kind of what I think of, but I think there's a lot that like people don't even know is on the menu. Yeah. The menu you know? is infinite. Yeah. If it exists, there's a kink for it. Yeah. Truly. I, people like to have food thrown on them of various kinds. It's called splooshing or it's either splashing or splooshing. Honestly, I thought splooshing was getting peed on. <laughs> no, that's golden showers. Yeah. Um, but you're splashing or splooshing. I've heard it pronounced both ways, but like I went to a party where somebody was turned into a plate of nachos. Okay. Yeah. She wanted her body cheese and, cheese and pickled jalapenos and sour cream. Did she want people to eat and the nachos off she of her body? Okay. Eat the nachos off of her body. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's those jalapenos go, yo. <laughs> I mean, you know, you can, you can eroticize anything. And so that's one of the places where kink is really, where it becomes like encyclopedic, right? Because anything can become erotic or sexual. Um, and that's also where, like, where the fun part comes is like talking about and talking to partners about like, what are things that you might always have had, uh, you know, I've always had like a little thrill around that. Like I have a thing for car washes. I could see that. It's very rhythmic and it gets yeah. like dark and it's like mm -hmm. cool. And it's like being in, it's like being trapped inside when it's raining. Like that mm -hmm. always makes me super And there's all these like sensory things. Suds and, yeah. yeah. Like yeah. it's all, you know, so I have a thing for car washes. So I have engaged in my car wash kink in multiple have you been through like a car wash like have you had not, like simulation well, of I, I mean not your body because you're not a car so you would have to simulate something that wouldn't like well I have I have I have been taken through car washes on numerous occasions and done some fun things and then a friend of mine and I actually did a car wash scene at a dungeon in which I in a latex dress was the car oh okay and she washed me 
as if it was like a car wash, you know, that you would do for, um, for like, like charity or something. Charity. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. So she was like the, the shorts wearing, yeah. sun literally, literally pigtails, plaid shirt tied right up underneath her boobs. Um, and the thing that was really hilarious about it is we planned this scene for such a long time and it never occurred to me that I would actually get wet. That I knew okay. there was going to be water, but when I got hit with the water, I was shocked that I was actually wet. You're like, wait, this car wash, I want a refund. <laughs> you actually put water on my car? <laughs> it was so funny. It was so funny. And I was laughing my head off. And yeah, it was just the goose. Obviously the water was not the part you were fantasizing about. Really? It was more like the, the sun part. Yeah. It was like the multiple varieties of like sensory experience. And it was hilarious. It was really fun. So and um, I really like bringing humor to my kink. And I have friends who like to bring humor to their kink. And so that's, um, you know, especially when you're doing like public play, which is a whole different part of the world. But, you know, for some people, especially those of us who are uh, former performers, um, the public part can be really, really fun. And people can come up with really creative um, stuff that will engage an audience. Um, but that's probably not what you're going to do in your like day-to-day -day bedroom. Yeah, I know. And I'm trying to think of, I'm trying to be, I know we're already over time. I told you okay. I would keep it a tight hour and I lied. I didn't mean yeah, to. I knew but, I okay. Knew okay. <laughs> she, knew, she knew I was fibbing for her. <laughs> um, but I do, I do want, cause I, I could literally, I could like talk with you about this forever. I still feel like I'm like, Oh my God, where did the time go? And I hope that people are like getting something they can use. I'm like titillated entirely. And <laughs> I am well, I'm so, I have so many questions. I'm so curious. I, I, I do want to know, like for people who I'm just, even with my own brain, cause I feel like I'm someone who is very, I'm very kink positive in the way that like, I'm very open yeah. to to kink. I'm open to discovering my own. I'm open to like playing with the ones that I can think of. Yeah. But I think even as I'm thinking, I think I have this desire sometimes where I'm like, I know that I'm kinky, but I don't know all of the ways in which I'm kinky. Like I don't even know. And I don't, and sometimes I don't know that I even know how to go about finding that out. It's like, I know little things. I know that I like being overpowered sometimes. I know that I like sensory, like having everything blacked out. I know that I like not being able to move sometimes. I know like there's these little things that I've experienced in like little moments that'll come into my mind when I'm thinking about this. But then I'm also like, oh, there's so much stuff that I might like, but I don't even know what it is or like how to find out about it. But I think I want to leave everyone with a place where if they're interested and they have a partner, they feel that they can at least be open with about their curiosity and their interest in the topic. Like, where can they start? I know that one of the things you have gotten into, like you are a, a kink coach, like you work with people on kind of developing, finding, creating safety around their yeah. kink. Like, how do you work exploring. with people who are just starting the journey? Like, what do you encourage them to do? Of course, I'll give everyone your contact. So if they need you to do it, they can get in touch with you to do that. But like, where would you start someone who's just a, a very budding kink curiosity? Well, I, there's a couple different places I would go. I mean, I would, I would definitely go to sensation and ask them, well, what are the kinds of sensations that you enjoy, right? Do you like to be petted? Do you like to be scratched? Do you like to be bitten? Do you like to be licked? 
Do you like to be touched with other, like, is it, do you want to be touched by your partner? Do you want them to touch you with something else? Do you want it to feel warm? Like I would go into a really in-depth sensory exploration. Um, and from there, we could figure out a lot of things in terms of like what kinds of toys and play they might want in terms of sensory play or impact or rope or bond, you know, bondage of any kind or you name it. I'd also want them to look at and start identifying those erotic fantasies, those sort of core erotic themes that come up for them. Are they about feeling free? Are they about feeling confined? Are they about feeling degraded? Are there certain words that they've always wanted to be, that they've always wanted to call someone or that they've always wanted to be called, right? Like when they get into dirty talk, are there, or any kind of sexy talk, are there words that they kind of wish somebody would um, say to them or that they don't quite know how to ask how to say to them, you know, ask them to say to them, um, you know, do they, are there roles that they're interested in, right? Like, do they, you know, do they have fantasies about like role play and like, you know, teacher student, or are they the teacher or are they the student? Is it stewardess? And I mean, I guess we don't even have stewardess anymore. Flight attendant. Yeah. Is it like, attendant and uh, flight attendant pilot or a, <laughs> or a client, you know, or a, you know, a, a passenger, you know, uh, is there a movie or something that they, or a book that they go back to over and over and over again, that they're like, or that they knew of as a child, like a fairy tale. There's, you know, I, I like to explore like internally and externally. So what's going, what are the things that are already generating internally from you, you know, um, that like, oh, I know that I want to feel safe. All right. You want to feel safe? Well, here are these things that might help you feel safe. And is that erotic for you? And what's erotic about it? Or I want to feel like I'm in a little danger. Okay, well, what's a little bit dangerous to you? And then we also want to talk about like media and all the different sources of, um, of images and whatnot or erotica or whatever that they are interested in. And then I would maybe push them in a particular direction. And then I also want to help them learn how to say words out loud right? And if they don't know how to say them out loud yet, I might have them write them down first or whisper them. Like learning how to talk dirty is something that's pretty hard for people and can feel very shaming. And you can't talk about sex um, with somebody if you can't articulate words. So that's something that I work with people on a lot um, is just getting- Her username y'all is articulate desire. So this is really, <laughs> this is our strong suit right here, right here. Um, and and then, yeah, and I mean, a lot of it is shame work and a lot of it is helping people to cultivate curiosity and then providing certain amounts of information and referring them to other good sources, right? Um, there are a lot of wonderful kink educators out there. A lot of them are within like a pretty closed kink community. And so you sort of need to know how to get into that. A lot of the stuff that's more publicly available um, is not necessarily as experience driven right? Because people who are, who are people who are in the kink community or in heavy duty kink BDSM leather communities are often a little snobby, um, mm -hmm. to be honest. And they're not really that interested all the time in, in sharing what they, um, have to share with people who are, um, who are just there for like a little mini vacation because they've put years and years and years of their lives into developing expertise and living a lifestyle that they, they want to make sure that you new young fawn of a kinkster um, are going to actually stay 
and be serious and learn yeah. to respect. So unless you want to live the kink lifestyle, yeah. they're not really here to help you spice up your 10 year relationship. And they're not to be shamed and they're not, you know, they're not there to be zoo animals. They're not there to be circus performers. And that's the way that people get treated a lot. And that doesn't mm-hmm. feel great. Right. Yeah. Well, it doesn't feel sense. great no matter what you're doing. Like if this is something like you wouldn't walk up to some, again, I'm going to use the rock climbing analogy. You wouldn't walk up to somebody that was like climbing a mountain right. And had clearly been doing this and doing really risky stuff for like 15 years and have them come down and be like, Hey, do you think you could show me and my girlfriend a couple tips? Like, <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't do that. That's so true. That is you, so true. It yes. would, and you definitely wouldn't be like taking their gear and touching it and like touching your partner with it and being like, Ooh, what does that feel like? Like you wouldn't do that. Right. Because it would be really rude and invasive and disrespectful, right? And so kinky people are very often a little bit gun shy about new people because what they do is vulnerable and shamed and sophisticated. And it's not really seen as the sophisticated, delicate, emotionally complex, um, hard one set of skills that you, you know, that one might give to like a professional athlete or, you know, a fine crafts person or, you know, what have you. Um, and so that's why there's people like me, um, and a number of other really, you know, there's, an, there's a lot of other, you know, really good, really good educators out there. I want to definitely, um, like, Stella Harris is a really great intimacy coach and, um, like kink educator. Uh, she does like, she's really, her stuff is accessible and really great. Then there's somebody like Midori who is like the high priestess of kink, um, in this country. Um, she's amazing. Um, you would not go up to her and ask her for initial tips, but you would go to her website (laughs) for inspo and education, go to her website and check out for, you know, uh, and I mean, there's tons of other people. I'm just putting those names out there. Um, Cause they were, you know, two of the people that I, you know, studied this sort of studied with earlier. Also Melina Williams Haas uh, is uh, she doesn't, she's an artist and a, expressor of things and a thinker and also a lifelong kinky person. And she has a lot of really wise things to say. And there's a movie about her and her world famous uh, Austrian composer husband. And they live in a 24 seven master slave relationship. She's an African-American New Yorker. Um, And there's a movie about them called The Artist and the Pervert, which I highly recommend if you are interested in high-end like serious lifestyle kink and the way that it can be uh really unbelievably romantic and artful and work through trauma and all those kinds of things uh melina has a lot of amazing things to say about kink and trauma um so yeah i would put those names out there as people not necessarily you that you would approach but just to like get some ideas from to glean inspiration and insight from yeah no, I would recommend that you who are listening, go find Catherine and her work and everything I'm going to link to so that she can compassionately and with humor and um, gentleness answer your questions and curiosity. And I love, I do love that you do shame work because I feel like 
even in the, cause it gets touched on. I think even when people come to me with questions around like, is this okay? Is this not okay? And the number one thing that stands between people and their own pleasure is, is shame. Like yeah. it's always shame, whether it's, you know, it doesn't matter the source that it comes from, but it is shame. And so the fact that you do shame work is really important. I think they're, again, when it comes back to this, this infinite menu, mm. I think people would have access. Like most people don't ever get past the appetizers because the shame sets in before they ever get to the entrees. And so there's so many things that they have never even accessed that might literally change your life. If you could just get away from like the judgment and the meaning yeah. you're creating around yourself and your life and all these things, if you engage in those things, I just, I think that there's a lot of magic there for people. Yeah. And I know that even in the way that, you know, my partner and I play with it, it's always, it always deepens our sense of trust and, yeah. and connection. And, um, even just the like vitality, like the laughter and the fun, yeah. like you have no idea what kind of disasters Mike and I have gotten into trying to do something that was sexy. Like it never <laughs> works out really, but the attempt is always appreciated. And the aftermath, we still feel closer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we eventually end up having hot sex, but it literally never goes in the sequence that we planned. That's, I can tell you that for sure. And normally we've like sequences initiated. It feels miserably. Everybody like is falling out laughing. And then we have a glass of wine and then we have really good sex because everybody's warmed up and we feel yeah. safe and happy. And you know, that's great. Um, so I, I think after is, yeah. is like, if people take their kink too seriously, yeah. you're in trouble. You, you gotta have that laughter because it's play ultimately. Yeah. Well, and that, and again, you're, you're trying stuff like neither, neither of us is professional. So we are trying things. I'm like, you don't know. And I just appreciate, I appreciate that he tries like dirty talk is one of the, you said, it's one of the hardest things for people to do. Yeah. We freaking kill. Like, it's so funny. Like over the years are, we have developed some pretty, um, some, I, I mean, I pretty good dirty talk, I would say, but every now and then I, we're not, we're not afraid to take risks every now and then he'll whip out something <laughs> brand new that I didn't know was coming sometimes. Yep. Sometimes it lands and sometimes it catches me by surprise. Sometimes he like whisper growls it. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, what? what? <laughs> to be able to crack up or I'll say something or I, like, and we'll make a note of it. And then after sometimes we'll hang with it through the whole moment. And then when it's over, we'll be like, so what did you, what was that that you, where did that come from? I'm so interested that one again. that. Yeah. Let's not do that. Yeah. But I think just another place that. where I really yeah. encourage people to, to ask ahead of time. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like you and Mike have like a really, yeah. obviously you have a really great relationship. But like, if you're going to try something, if, if you don't have that particular level of trust, right? Like you can just ask somebody like, how do you feel about this word? Yeah. What does it bring up with you? And they'll be like, they might be like, I don't know. And then you could be like, well, what if it was said like this? And they could be like, oh, fuck no. Or yeah. they might be like, oh, oh, would yeah. you like to be called this? Or yeah. would you like to? Yeah. 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 Cause I, when yeah. Out, talk out. Language is so powerful and you'll actually learn a lot about what your potential kink directions are from the language that you like, right? I wish we right? covered this much sooner. Yeah. <laughs> next time, next, next time. time, next time, round three with Catherine. Oh my God. Yeah. You can every year, every six months, we'll just, we'll have a regular, we'll just pencil it in.
So two books that I want to also mention that are actually very accessible and that I recommend for anybody who's interested in kink. It's the new topping book and the new bottoming book. And they're both written by Janet Hardy and Dossie Easton. Okay. Awesome. And those are fantastic because they, I mean, they're a little sex magic-y at the end. They get a little woo. I'm um, get some woo. <laughs> Yeah. I think everybody here is okay with woo. <laughs> Good. Just letting you know. Yeah. Um, I don't, I mean, you know, sometimes people find that aversive. I don't. I know. I um, like it. I like uh, it all. Yeah. But they talk a lot about what the mindset is behind kind of being in both positions. And it's really important, I think, to know from both sides so that you can ask for what you want and also so and that give, you give what, somebody what the other yeah. person want right and so that you can engage in a mutual you know dynamic process as opposed to a I'm doing things to you I'm having things done to me right the magic is in between is in the spot where that's happening not in the like I'm the doer I'm the doe and then there's no contact there right and like you can see people who play like that and it it's it's not it they're they're not having a lot of fun yeah well, and I feel, and this is the last thing I'll say about this, and then I'm going to ask how people can work with you. I, I feel like even, even when you say like the, the doer and the dewey, you know, and, and that's not how it's supposed to be. Like when I think about kink and kink relationship and kink dynamic, I think about the facilitator and the, like the receiver, you know, yeah. it's like even when it's this like dom sub thing, like the submissive is receiving that dominance that's being yeah. facilitated by that person like that. Yeah. You know, like it's something that is very like that and that in itself to me is incredibly sensual and intimate. Like it's a highly intimate thing to to receive something that is being fully facilitated to actually let yourself be facilitated. I mean, we know that that's incredibly, that's a tender, like very intimate thing to experience. Very, very. I would love to know how you are working with people these days, how you like to work with people. Where would you like for people to connect with you do not slide into her dms being creepy and weird i will shut you down myself do not do that <laughs> um i don't have any creeps so here by the way you can get in touch with me a couple different ways um you can go to find me on instagram my instagram is at articulate desire i post all kinds of stuff on there um including lots of content about sex and kink and relationships and and lots of beautiful bondage and some beautiful bondage and also I'm really into nail art right now so I also post pictures of my nail yep (laughs) um that's my high femme coping strategy right now is getting my nails done um and you can email me at hello at articulate desire.com um, you can go to my website, which is articulatedesire.com, or you can also email me at my therapy email. I'm giving you all the options here, which we'll is put them all in the show notes too, which is K Friedman therapy, F R I E D M A N therapy at gmail.com. And I am working with people as a mental health and sex therapist in New York and Oregon. Those are the states that I'm licensed in to provide mental health therapy. I provide intimacy consulting, which includes kink coaching um, in, I can do that any from any place. Um, 
I do all of my work on Zoom or on the phone right now. I'm hoping to have an office in person in New York City, uh, probably in the fall of 2022, but a lot depends on COVID. And I depend if you're coming in for intimacy consulting as an individual or as a partnership, we will do, you know, and an, I always do an, a free initial consultation with everybody to talk about what we're doing. And uh, for intimacy consulting, we can talk about shorter term work, you know, one or two sessions, six sessions, or a more open-ended uh, process. And we basically figure out what you need and work around work around what you're hoping to uncover. And I can also refer people out if I don't have space or if what you want is not uh, what I do. I also, I don't work with a lot of cis men. I work with cis men around kink more than I do around other things. My practice is primarily with um, like femme identified people and non-binary folks, trans and non-binary folks. Um, and so I work with a lot of women and a lot of trans and non-binary people um, who are not identified as women. Um, and uh, that's, that's, that's my practice. Mm. Catherine, you are such a gift. And I, I can attest to the fact that she is magic and if you, you will feel so entirely supported while also so thoroughly educated. I think I told you that the first time I talked to you, like, I just really love how, accessible and kind and like good humored you are, but also you do not skimp on the education piece and making sure that everyone really understands like what is going on and where things are rooted in. And I just, I feel like sometimes when you get the great bedside manner, you lose some of the other stuff and vice versa. And I just feel like you are such a beautiful culmination of all of the things. So you would be in the best of hands with Catherine. Thank go you. to her, blow up her inbox, send her emails, go to her website, check out all of her things. And I have got to hop off because my baby's going to bed and I hear her in the background being like, okay, mommy, mommy. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh my God. I can't wait to get this out to everyone. All right. Oh my God. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Catherine. I'll have Thank you. you. Thank Take you so care. much. Bye. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Hands on my heart. Thank you. Thank you for being here and for listening with an open and curious mind. Anne Voskamp says, shame dies when stories are told in safe places. I would be so grateful for your help to expand the safety we're creating here by subscribing, rating, and sharing this show with the folks you love. Let's keep nothing important confidential.